Hi, Ryan. Sorry I'm late. Where were you? Everyone was waiting for you. Were... It's a long story. Yeah? There, there is a long corridor involved. <laughs> Lots of doors. Wind. When you open each door. It's just a lot. It's just a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, so much that, like, you can barely see it in colour. Like, you can't uh. imagine it clearly. It's a bit foggy. Like, there's just a lot to it, and I don't know if I'm ready to get into it. Hmm. I think I, th- I think I need maybe, you know, 10, 15 years, and then I can tell the story uh. in a metaphorical way. Mm-hmm. But that's not what we're here to do. Yeah. We are here on the Yum Yum Pod today. On Yum Yum 5, specifically. To deliver some Yum Yum 5, in which we are both <laughs> re-watching an episode of the 90 sci-fi show, Babylon 5. Yes, Babylon 5. And we're revisiting it, so it means spoilers are abound for those people out there who are worried about that. We are telling you right up front that we will delve into it because we are veterans of this series and we're going back and we're talking about it from our standpoint of having seen the show a couple of times already and Rachel Yum Yum came from a line of dialogue. Now, I know we've spent over a hundred episodes explaining what Yum Yum has come from, but some people still ask, where did the name come from, guys? Like, why Yum Yum? And it's because there was a moment in Star Trek Discovery in which a character said Yum Yum out loud as a reply to something, and seeing that in a modern prestige television series, the revitalization of Star Trek, I, uh, my, my, my jaw hit the floor. Rachel, you had a heart attack because that line was so absurd, so atrocious, so out of place that we just had to commemorate it every day for the rest of our lives to carry it with us wherever we, wherever we go. And we do the same for the podcast. We, we mention it, we rate and review things from Yum Yum. We talk about who in a given episode of a show had YYE. Yum yum energy. It was Jakar in this episode, by the way. There's no one there's no other contender. He was really hitting for YYE. And uh Drunk Jakar, especially. Oh, especially. But also when he went and jumped down for the fight, he could have said it then. Yield or die. Not a chance. I got friends. See? That's alright! So does he. It's it's episode 13, season three. Lucky 13. A late delivery from Avalon. Sheridan unveils the Babylon Treaty. Mm-hmm. An unusual traveler comes aboard, claiming to be King Arthur, and he has the sword Excalibur to back his claim. I like how they chucked in the Sheridan thing like it's a plot and not just two, three scenes shoved into this episode randomly. Well, <sighs> they didn't dare They could have do just opened up with King Arthur they in didn't, the description. 
They didn't dare do it with the Postal Service plot. They didn't even mention them. That's in the title of the episode, which was, I was going to ask you, do you think the Postal plot came before or after the title? After. Really? Yeah. I really think that JMS had this idea of they would suffer from not having Postal Service properly after breaking away, and the title came from that. Okay. I think he I think personally that he had this idea of Arthurian crap and also this idea of what happens if they can't get mail and then he created the title from there. I really do think that. Okay, cool story, bro. Oh, you agree? A late delivery from Avalon is a cool story, bro. Thank you all so much for listening to Yum Yum Podcast in which we give our quickfire opinions on episodes of television. That was our quickfire opinions on A Late Delivery from Avalon. You can find us on all your all of your social medias under Yum Yum Pod or Yum Yum Podcast. Rachel's giving me this look like, wow, he's really going through with this. He's really going through. No, in all, uh, as the kids would say, seriousness, I have seen this episode quite a few times, obviously. I never skip episodes when I'm watching Babylon 5, but this has always been a contender for my skip list if I ever had to create one. I'm not a, I've am not never been a huge fan of this episode. I don't hate it by any means. There are ones that I think are far worse than this, ones that I find far more boring as well, but this is just one that has always come in that midpoint in season three, and it doesn't leave as much of a mark as the other episodes in this area. Like, Sick Transit Veer is more fun for me than this, but I don't hate a late delivery from Avalon, but I also do ridicule it a lot, as you've probably heard in previous episodes of this podcast. I often use the, and then King Arthur came to the station as a point of uh, derision, because it is one of those gimmick plots in which the writer has their little gimmick to throw at us, and you have to be on board for that or not. Like, what if... Jack the Ripper came to the station, or what if there was a guy looking for the Holy Grail, and so on and so forth. Sebastian, please. Yeah, Sebastian was looking for the Holy Grail, thank you. No, um, you know what I'm talking about, though. There are those episodes of those sci-fi shows, including Babylon 5, in which there's The Thing, and it isn't necessarily related to the show as strongly, yet there are themes and uh, plot points that obviously are with this one, but... This isn't one that draws me in with its gimmick. I'm not an Arthurian head. I'm not into King Arthur stuff. It's never been appealing to me. I have no attachment towards it. I'm also not into... uh, uh, At this point in the show, now we have a guest star character be a lead. I mean, the Brad Dorff episode was this season, and yet I like that episode. I've always liked that episode. But uh, yeah, I've just always had a very meh mixed and i could skip this episode opinion on a late delivery from avalon what about you what about you what has been your dynamic with this one the king arthur episode i'm always like oh and the king arthur episode okay it's here it's gone bye-bye do you remember what you thought of it that first time i remember not enjoying the episode but enjoying the consequences of the plot. Mm. Like, drunk Jakar. Fucking love it. Yes, Sir Jakar, the Red Knight. Wonderful, wonderful. 
forever, forever in love with that scene. Gave you Marcus, more Marcus action. And he's, being me, full, he's being full British boy. Gave me more Marcus. Enjoyed it. He quoted somebody that's not Dickens. <gasps> and Franklin knew who it was. Yeah. I know. I was very surprised by that. Garibaldi being an asshole. Yeah, the Postal Service thing is always a little amusing, uh, amusing aside. And Sheridan being like, no, I reject this plot. Give it to Marcus. Yeah. So you've not been a fan of this either. Why? It's it's passable, mm-hmm. which is why it feels very skippable in lots of ways. There was no King Arthur. It's a story. It's a well, not exactly. There's enough historical evidence to suggest that there may have been a real person behind those stories. Well, either way, it's pretty obvious this guy is not Arthur. So, as interesting a diversion as this might be, our first concern right now has to be getting this treaty worked out. I still don't think that this is an incredible episode, but it does offer up a lot of pieces and uh, has uh, a great performance at the centre of it. And it reminded me of it having things that I really like from Babylon 5, certain quotes, certain character beats that are, are that are in this episode. And so I got a lot out of it on this watch. And having to do our podcast where we're revisiting and looking over things and reviewing them and analyzing them, I got more, more stuff out of it looking at it through that lens than I have in previous watches in which it is... Uh, I am going through the episodes and then I'm moving on to the next episode. So then eventually I get to the stuff I like or the stuff that I really love. And that isn't present with this because we're doing it week to week. So I'm making this an event in itself every weekend when we sit down to record these. So I I came in with a different relationship with the late delivery from Avalon than I usually have. And I think a lot of people would. And so that is something to note down for for people out there who love or hate this episode. The way that we're consuming it this time is very different to maybe how you people are out there and how we have had done it in the past. I want to praise something straight up top is it has my favorite Marcus quote in it as well. Um, I'm team Marcus, uh, as we've heard. I'm on the Marcus train and... Choo-choo! Choo-choo! And it has the quintessential Marcus quote, which is when he is talking back to Franklin and how if life was fair, it would be a really terrible thing if we got all the things that we deserved. And that viewpoint that he offers up is what his character is throughout the whole entire show. He, He offers up this very unique understanding of the world that not every other character has and that was really great to see here and to see how he explores that himself within the episode with his relationship to Arthur and how he's willing to let Arthur live this lie because if he found out the truth of his backstory, the truth of who he is, those horrible things of life would catch up and ruin this illusion, ruin this idyllic situation that he's living in, ruin this hero, and it wouldn't be fair. And I really enjoyed that. Uh, How are you with that? Marcus is a character you very much enjoy. How did you fare with him in this and that 
that quote that he gave us. I love that quote that he gave us. Especially, like, oh, I can't remember exactly, so I don't want to say it. But when he, when they're leaving the scene and he has that last line and it's like, yeah, that's your philosophy, Marcus. Yeah, that he takes great comfort in the general hostility and unfairness of the universe. Yes, that's it. That's it. That's my boy. That's an angsty little bitch. (laughs) That's my angsty little British man. Uh, Also, the beard's coming in more. The beard is coming in more. It's in there, and I'm I'm here for it. You are. You, it's a distinct correlation for you between how much you like Marcus and how strong the beard is. It's getting to soup-catching level. (laughs) I used to think it was awful that life was so unfair. Then I thought, wouldn't it be much worse if life were fair and all the terrible things that happen to us come because we actually deserve them? So now I take... Great comfort in the general hostility and unfairness of the universe. Yeah, King Arthur's on the station. He is. And that that that's cool and weird. Yeah, that's that's what? a very important plot. We should probably talk about it, right? There's no other important plots. Right, Rachel? You're joking, right? Oh, the postal service plot? I mean that's No No, no I'm talking about the momentous Momentous. Political <gasps> I love Occasion. sci-fi. Oh, what's happening? There's a treaty. The Babylon Treaty. Whoa, that's... Wait, how isn't that the the centerpiece of this episode? That sounds like a big deal. What, what a, a Babylon 5 making a treaty with who? All of... Pretty much all of the non-aligned worlds, even though they're fighting each other. Mm. So it's even cooler because it might help bring those worlds together. Like it's our last best hope for peace. I know. That should be the main plot of this episode, right? But wait, I'm looking over my notes and I, I, I wrote down two things for this plot. Weird yeah. that I wouldn't write so much down for such a... Pivotal, game-changing swerve of the status quo for Babylon 5. Why is that, Rach? Why is that, Rachel? Because JMS let us down. What? No. That can't be true. I don't believe you. Just skipped over it, honey. Okay, let's just get into it. What the <laughs> fuck is this? What the this fuck is, is this? Them, uh, it's a framing device. Yeah. That's what it is. And it's odd because... A very half-hearted framing device. It's like, and why can't they rely on the Minbari? Well, I understand that. They can't just lean on one resource. As we saw in Ceremonies of Light and Dark, there's a way to take that away. If possible. So it makes sense. Here's what this is. It is JMS looking at the the game he's now set and having to fill in the rules. Because this would be a natural consequence that would need to be filled in. Yeah, it makes it makes sense that this happened. And it makes sense that they would show you this in Babylon 5. But it's just 
nothing. Uh, it's enough D again. Enough D people. And do you want to know what that means? Well, become Australian and find out. This is a footnote. This is just a thing, a, a loose thread to be tied off. And now the nerds can be happy that it is tied off. And we have resolved this potential problem. And we can nip it in the bud now before it blossoms into something bad later. And that's all it is. It is him checking off a thing on his list rather than making it anything of substance. This is a sequence of events that just takes up time in the episode. And like I said, it serves as a very half-hearted framing device. You really can tell this when we get to the point where they've wrapped up that and then Ivanova is about to tell Sheridan what's going on with the plot further and then we cut back to the Arthur plot. Yeah. It's possibly the laziest example of this we've seen. Teeny weeny bit pathetic. I keep forgetting that there were even scenes of it here because it's not as if there was any challenge. It was just they had a meeting and handed out some folders. Okay. Okay, this this took up five minutes. We don't even get name drops of the worlds that don't sign on. Yeah. It's just enough of them did with room to spare. Great. Done. That's it. We we move on to the postal plot, which is good. I like it. Where well, what's happening in it? Do you want to tell us about what is happening with the postal service, the post office? Well, as we know, as we know, Garibaldi is a wonderful cook. He is, and to be a good cook, you need good ingredients, and he imports those from Earth. He's waiting on his last package from Earth. With all those beautiful ingredients to make that gourmet Italian food that he is known for and that Franklin wants him to stop eating. Didn't he have a guy? Remember? He had that guy. The guy from uh, Mortal Kombat. DJ from Mortal Kombat that was helping sneak food in. Like he was a pilot or whatever. Or he was like a guy. He wasn't a postal service guy. Yeah. This is like one of those where it's like, oh, forget that. That's a, that was that was a previous episode. This episode that, is the post office yeah, is getting them from yeah. now. Well, he knows, um, like we knew that he could get most things through the postal service. It was a, a special situation that he needed that for, and I think it was like the amount of olive oil. Yeah, and he needed or, it by a certain date. Yeah, like he was in a rush. Okay. Um. I believe that there's some half-hearted patch that I can apply to that problem. Well, okay, guys. Guys, I'm so sorry for calling into question the narrative integrity of a distant star. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Thank you. I I I shouldn't have done that. No. And I I forgive me on your behalf. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So... Garibaldi rocks up and he's told that it's going to be a hundred credits. Thank you very much. How much is a credit? I I still don't fucking know. I still still don't understand. JMS, we know you're listening. Tweet at us. 
How much is a credit? Hashtag how much is a credit in B5. So he has to pay 100 credits. That's a lot. That's twice the amount that Nightwatch would pay you a week to be a Nazi spy. Just think about that. They would only pay Zack 50 credits. Now he has to pay double that for the mail. Could you imagine having to pay more than $100 dues, which is the equivalent of credits for mail? I can't I can't imagine that. I can't. <laughs> really? Like Babylon 5 is several light years from Earth, right? And they have to go through hyperspace. And now they've broken away from Earth. So yeah. there's all these extra things that are making and it more it expensive. It looks like a pretty hefty box. Box. But it looks like a toolbox that they've stuck a B5 sticker on. No, not a B5 sticker. They, uh, they made a special Earth, Earth postal, po- postal thing, and I love that they made a special little logo for them. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah, because, you know, you, you get that. You get the post, like, the boxes that you get from the post office that have the little logo on it. It's like, that makes sense. But... I'm thinking of how much it costs, like, per gram to send anything up into space now. They're still using pounds. They, don't, they haven't evolved to the metric system. They measure it by five miles. Those stupid, <sighs> stupid, foolish Americans anyway, and their space so travel. Anyway, so I can imagine... Yeah, it's really science fiction. They're still using, you're still like, using that system, not the metric. They can't, use, they can't fucking grow coffee beans... On the station legally. Marcus so. has to use his ranger skills to get bacon and eggs. Like, I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's outrageous, but not unexpected. Garibaldi thinks it's unexpected and outrageous. Yes. He believes that this is unacceptable. Look, that's three times the delivery charge for a package this size. That was before we had a revolution around here. Now, in my little corner of Earth Force, the mail still gets delivered. If I got to use trap doors, alien transports, and back channels to get the mail in and out of here, then that's what I'll do, because that's my job. Neither rain, nor snow, nor meteors, nor alien invasion, nor... Look, this is extortion. The story is very, very short and sweet and simple. It is a guy at the Postal Service refuses to give Garibaldi the things that he wants. Garibaldi, in one way or another, tries to get those things, and then in the end, he does. What swings this into being more fun is that performance from the the post office guy. He is fun. He looks like he's a guy that would work at the post office. He acts like an absolute asshole, but in a real fun way, in a real delightful way as a viewer, in which you can tell that this guy is just enjoying dicking Garibaldi about, but there's no real malicious intent behind it. And in a way, you root for him at points because Garibaldi is such an asshole as a character a lot. It's fun to see a ca- another person look him in the eye and make fun of him, and Garibaldi has nothing to do. He can't stop them from dicking him over, and then you watch him throughout the course of the episode 
figure a way out to come out on top. And that is the 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 thrust of why this all works. It's that performance, it's the dynamic of those two characters against one another, rather than having anything substantive to the plot of it itself. Which is why we have to criticize the Sheridan Babylon 5 charter thing. That has none of that. It nope. has nothing. Nope, 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 nope. This doesn't have a plot necessarily. There's no real mega complex three act structure or character growth or arc, but it has that dynamic. That understandable comedic riffing dynamic to yeah. it. And we get to see Garibaldi try to figure it out. So, as you were going to go into him and another security guard, not Zach Allen, he was having a day off. And Lou, Lou's not here anymore. We miss Lou. If Lou was here, it would have been a top 10 scene. But him and another security guard, uh, they come at night. And uh, what's their plan? These uh, these genius security guys, what's their plan? Shoot the lock off, take Garibaldi's package, and leave. Because if security breaks and enters, it's not a crime. They're broken away from Earth. There's no <laughs> such thing as law enforcement proper now. They make their own rules. Yeah. And, uh, well, what happens? He shoots the lock off. It's late at night, and... The dude's waiting for him. Torch in the face. <laughs> yep. It's so ludicrous. This is a sitcom plot. This is a sitcom plot. I can imagine, I can imagine this being in an episode of Becca, and... I like that the guy is sitting there in the middle of the night, still with his hat on. That's the thing that really gets me, is he still has his hat on. And he's just sitting there in the dark, waiting just so that he can nab them and say, you owe me 20 credits. Yeah. <laughs> and, oh, and don't, don't you think I won't take this to the Postmaster General? I'm going to take it right up to him immediately. It's like, who's that? <laughs> what consequences will befall Garibaldi now? And uh, is there any other scene outside of that before the end? I think it's just that, right? I think they just have like three scenes. Yeah, yeah. We just have the three scenes. And then how does Garibaldi resolve this? Blackmail. Well, is it blackmail? Well, not... Mm. I guess it is extortion, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's more... Well, it's I'll keep this secret or I'll turn a blind eye mm. more so um, to the fact that you're not paying rent either on the post office or on your quarters because mm. Earth Dome, Earth Force, whatever Earth Alliance Earth Alliance Postal Service was doing that for you. But since we're working away they aren't giving us any money. And you aren't. So so you've been extorting you've been extorting and ripping off the system hmm so give me because you know what 101 credits like garibaldi is not as socialist as i want him to be <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa what because really you mean the guy who beat up the dock workers when they're on strike isn't as much of a socialist as you want him to be i know i know i know but, but his grandma was a Boston cop. Think about it. Probably the degree to which this dude has hiked up the prices 
for everybody, not just for Garibaldi. Oh, yeah. Garibaldi cares only about himself. Is probably somewhat equal to the rent mm-hmm. for that dude's quarters and for the business location of the post office. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so well, we just... assume. We don't know how much 100 credits is. No, but, like, you could just say that those things cancel each other, other out, drop the prices back down to help with morale. Yeah. One of the little things I really liked, well, there's two things. One of them's a background thing. I really adored this. People keep an eye out for this. In the final sequence, there's a person waiting in line behind oh, Garibaldi with, so a, with a big silver box. Getting so and annoyed. When Garibaldi looks like, like he's uh, uh, done. No, no. Yeah, no. when Garibaldi looks like he's done in turning away, the guy takes a step forward like, oh, finally. And then when Garibaldi turns back, he has to he sighs and kind of looks pissed off and he takes a step back in line and he looks really annoyed because he thought it was his time to get served at the post office. And I thought that was a nice little background detail. And the other thing that relates to... That's an extra taking their moment. That's direction. That's direction because we know the directors of Babylon 5, especially in season three, give the extras little things to do to liven up the scene, whether it's a couple bickering, a, a person smacking another one across the face, or people like the 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 the, the metal bug guys, the games where they're, where they're drinking and playing cards in the background. They've made the world far more alive when it comes to the extras that are inhabiting the scenes. And they've always, they've always had a lot of extras in Babylon 5. So giving them more than just, here's a doc worker guy welding a piece of metal. They're giving him little other things. But when it comes to the Garibaldi trick, he has taken a leaf out of Sheridan's book who took a leaf out of Sinclair's book. Because this reminded me of when they tried to rip Sheridan off about paying rent. And then he found a loophole within the system in which they're paying themselves. And that's what Garibaldi's having to do here. A very similar move in which you guys aren't paying rent. How about your rent is one credit more than what you would charge me for my postal services? Just for this month. Well, yeah. And uh, I thought that was uh, a fun little thing. And again, the title... Of this episode is a late delivery from Avalon, and we're having to deal with late deliveries and deliveries being withheld. So this goes into that, and that's how we get there. And I I did have a chuckle that when we saw Garibaldi outside of that plot, when we saw him running down the hallway with all of his security men talking about how they got to get King Arthur... It was amusing to me that he was so security chief Garibaldi in that sequence because we see him from the point of view of Marcus. But when we see Garibaldi as an audience point of view, he's that lovable guy that we all like and we're seeing him be dicked over. Yet when we see him from Marcus's point of view, he's a foe that has to be overcome or to be be avoided. And I thought that was a... Interesting little piece of business there, because Garibaldi is a... In Marcus's world, Garibaldi has the power. In Mm. Garibaldi's world, he doesn't. I don't know, Chief. I don't know if we should be doing this. It's my stuff. Don't worry. I'll leave the money behind for what it should have cost. What are you so nervous about? We went up against the entire Earth Alliance... And two carrier groups. Yeah, but this is the post office. This could get us in real trouble. King Arthur visits the station is the pitch of the episode. Now, we both know that he's not actually King Arthur. 
but that is the pitch. King Arthur visits the station. A lot of the episode is putting you on the hook of, is this actually King Arthur? And if not, what is happening here? There's a mystery. There's a plot to be driven from the notion that there is this guy walking around in a suit of armor or chainmail with a sword claiming that it's Excalibur and that he's this dashing king from the past. Is that too silly of a pitch for you at this point in the series? Not on its own. Okay. Um, Why not? Here's the difference, though, for me. It's not that itself is too silly. It's that it's too silly all up front. Yeah? And that's why I'm like, meh. Well, how's it silly all up front for you? What are some examples of this? The way that we're introduced to him. Okay. Compare that to the way that we're introduced to Sebastian. Mm, where there's an ominous quality to yeah. Sebastian. And uh, they leave the reveal of who he is to the very end of the episode. Yes. Here we are pitched that this is King Arthur at the very start of, or like in the opening sequences of mm-hmm. the story. Yeah. Anybody who is truly dangerous is secretive. So it's like, oh, okay, this is not going to be what it seems. Yeah. Because it would be really fucking dull if somebody just, a weirdo rocking up to the station and being like, hey, I'm a weirdo, I'm going to be a weirdo in this way and continuing to be an, a weirdo and, and then, then leaving. Proven, and then it's proven to be correct that he actually is that weirdo he claims to be. Like, that's not interesting storytelling, and that's not JMS's style. So you know that there's going to be some switcheroo at some stage. A reveal is going to be And you're like, bad. is it going to... It's not going to be more silly than the King Arthur stuff, because that's not the tone that this show goes for. But it does it tee you up with the idea it could be cause yeah. of Sebastian. It, it plays with that. But it's like, it's starting up high, so it's going to go low. Because that juxtaposition is JMS's bread and fucking butter going from one extreme to the other and gliding you through them. Yeah. Is what it's like when it's at its best. This is not such a smooth ride, which is also why it makes it feel more silly at times. Because... All of the pieces are kind of working. Like, the performance is great. Mm -hmm. The script is fairly solid. But it just doesn't click into place for me. Interesting. So, I'm on the opposite end. I cannot get over the pitch. I just can't. It's one of those things in which it is a preference. There is no, oh, this is objectively a terrible idea. People, if you like this idea, great. I can't. I can't get on board with it. It is just one of those things that has always blocked me off. It is too silly. It is too absurd. Especially at this point in the series. Especially at this point in the show where we've gone through so much. Even if we've had light, silly affairs like with Veer last episode. Zog. 
Zog. No, but yeah, but Zog was an absurd moment within a serious idea. Yes. This is a this to me. This to me has always been a silly idea. And yes, but it's not because silly doesn't work in the show. That's why and, I brought up Zog. But, but yeah, that's why you brought up Zog. No, but Zog in itself isn't a silly silly idea. The like the idea of they meet first ones and make them allies isn't a silly idea. This to me is a silly idea of what if there was a guy who thought he was King Arthur and he visited Babylon 5? I roll my eyes. I'm gritting my teeth right now even saying that. And you're right about silly ideas in place, but at this time in the show, I don't need those silly ideas anymore. If this was season two, episode seven, sure. I could accept that a little bit more, but after all the stuff we've gone through with Earth and and, and the Centauri and the Narn and so on and so forth, this is just a holdover for me. But on the opposite end, again from you, is I did not think it was silly in its execution uh, because the performance and the character himself of King Arthur slash David McIntyre is played straight. He believes it. He's embodying this. There is an emotional gravitas behind Authentic. him. Authentic. Lived in. The silliness comes from how people around him react, such as Jakar and Marcus, and even to a minor extent, uh, uh, Sh- uh, Sheridan, because when he hears about it, he, he just blows it off like, this is an interesting little oddity. But he himself is so po-faced about it that I don't find it silly. It's just the pitch of it is silly. Like, the premise that this is is silly, but the actual execution of it is the most straight-laced, sincere, wholehearted attempt that you could do with this. With this. With this inherently blocking me out of being able to buy this premise. And I appreciate that, because at no point to me is JMS and or Michael York as, as, as Arthur slash David McIntyre winking at me when they're doing this the closest never, jms gets never. At, the closest jms gets at winking at me is at the very end when marcus is riffing about who is all of the king arthur characters and that's the end but all of the emotional stuff that comes from this man who comes aboard babylon 5 is genuine i just wish i could get into it but it is just guys this week King Arthur visits the station, but is it is it really King Arthur? Let's find out. I zone out. I just can't. I just can't abide. Fair it. enough. Uh, it didn't particularly help you. It helped me uh, that we watched the preview before we watched the episode, which we very, very, very rarely do. Yeah, I was just getting stuff set um, up in another and room I and was, you were like, oh, I'll put this on. Yeah, because I was like, oh, yeah, that the function's there. Um, and it's just like, oh, boy, they're really trying to sell this. On the next Babylon 5. Give us the sword, mister. A distinguished guest visits the station. I am Arthur, king of the Britons. No man takes Excalibur from me and lives. But is he a real-life legend? How did you get here? You don't believe I am who I say I am. Or an ominous illusion. He's escaped. Michael York, guest stars. Yield or die. On Battleon 5. The heart of this story is what if 
we met the person, the man, the individual that、Who、pulled shot that gun, that pulled the trigger, that started the Minbari War, a war we know has made such a huge impact to all of the characters in this show, to the world of this show. What if we met him? Who would he be? How would he feel about being a participant in that? And how would somebody like Delenn react to that? That is the centerpiece of this story, and my disconnect is that should just be it on its own without the King Arthur gimmick. Because that question is fairly neglected in this episode. It's a reveal. It's a dramatic reveal in the final half of the story. Yeah, but it could be so much more, and we don't really get. Anything from Delenn? She doesn't say a word. She has nothing to say about this, and yet you think. But is there a disconnect for you when it comes to this, or do you think it is woven well enough within this? Oh, I think it's a question that's brought up but not really answered. In like, not in the way that I find satisfying. It's like, oh yeah, and that happened, I guess. I just wish that this was a story about the man who pulled the trigger, started the Minbari War, wanting forgiveness, and Dalen having to struggle to give it. That should be the story. I don't need the、We、King Arthur stuff on top of it. Franklin asking her to do this. No, but it's supposed to be a dramatic reveal of who is the Lady of the Lake. Cut to Delenn, and you, the audience, go, "Oh yeah, of course." Yeah, she literally looks like the Lady from the Lake. Absolutely, I get that, but I want that scene. I want to see that moment of conflict in Delenn. That. Highlighting that real difference between season one Delenn, that is still struggling with the repercussions of the war, her、mm. feelings about it, in particular in relation to her decisions. Yeah. In the war, now that we know what they were, we know what her role was, and how. She was the final person to say yes, shoot back. Yeah, but yes, I understand that completely, and I like agree. It, those two sides of the same coin. It could have been really deep and captivating to deal with that without the King Arthur stuff. That yeah, of he's the one that pulled the trigger because of his captain, and she's on the other side of the war in the role of the captain, essentially. Well, and even if you didn't want to reveal that, that's a reveal in season four that we find out that she was the deciding vote. Yes, yes what yes, I yes. think I you could easily、yeah. do is, and here's the thing: we're talking like, about it now. Do the 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 the. The beating emotional core of this is real. This man's turmoil is unique, and a story that you didn't think that you wanted to see in a show like this. But yet, when it's presented, you go, 
Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. I want to know more about the man who started, quote unquote, started the Earth Minbari War. I would like to see how that would impact the people there. Like, the fact that Sheridan never gets to find this out on screen and or react about it is bananas to me, by the way. And so is it for Delenn. She gets told about this off screen. She comes in and she's just quiet and accepts his sword and forgives him. There's another version of this script in which this is a Delenn episode. Because you could have her struggling to forgive because she thinks that she's at that point where she could be like that. Because she's a bridge between two worlds, right? She's this human Minbari who's protecting Babylon 5 and she's very angelic. But when presented with a figure who has made the path she went on a very dark path in her life, is presented to meet that figure and forgive them... Maybe she has trouble doing that because she had to hold the body of her mentor dying in her arms because of this guy right there. That's a story. That's a story. I don't need him running around helping an old lady get a picture frame back. That takes up like five minutes of this episode. That's goofy. That was goofy. It feels longer. It, it feels, feels because they party about it for so much after it. And don't get me wrong, I really enjoy the vigilante stuff where he's running around helping people and him and Jakar are best friends. And That's fine! That is very cute and enjoyable, but that's the thing. This episode is more cute, fluffy, throwaway with a bittersweet quality rather than... Uh, rather than... Uh, it could have been far more emotionally impactful than it is. This man you describe, he had no business surviving. A quarter of a million men and women dead on the battlefield. At Camlan. No, not, not Camlan. No, not Camlan. They died in the Minbari. I was responsible. No. Responsible for my knights and for those who followed me into battle. And their armor was not strong enough to protect them. Their horses... Their horses were on fire! Because what we learn throughout this journey is that this man is not in fact King Arthur, but a soldier from Earth Force who was there when they met the Minbari that first time, and they fired upon them. He fired upon them. He was ordered to, and he did it, and he's felt guilt about it, bouts of depression, signed himself... Well, he was signed on to be at the Battle of the Line. He was one of the few people who survived. Well, they needed everybody they could get, yeah, right? And he yeah. volunteered well, knowing it was a suicide mission, and he's yeah. one of the... What was it? Around 200, 200 out of 20,000 people to survive and again we're seeing the survivor's guilt aspect of the show being brought in there's a lot of characters in this that are suffering from survivor's guilt and ptsd and here's another example of that and yet that aspect is left for the back half as a reveal yeah yeah and i don't care enough about him to be that invested in it. Mm. Mm. I I care about him enough, but I think it's just because 
this idea is so enrapturing to me. This premise of you the man who started the war so is enough. You are excited by the potential of it. Yeah, and Michael York's very good. Yeah, Michael York, is, Michael York is, is really bringing it that extra flavour. I haven't thought about this. This episode, like you say, and like I say, feels very skippable, very one and done. You could just watch it and go, eh, whatever. But it is that type of episode where it is that, but it is putting together all of these important pieces that have been given to us throughout the show to give us a full picture, or at least a fuller fuller picture, of how the Earthman Bari War started. Because it's we've another been given piece. enough. It's another piece of that situation. And a lot of the time, a lot of the time, information that comes through about that first encounter is paired with information about the line mm-hmm. as well. Because those two things go very much hand, hand in, in hand. hand. It's like the start and the end. Yeah, the end, yeah. He's been giving us all of the information we need to know about how the war started. We know that the Minbari have their gun ports open as a sign of respect, and we saw Sinclair almost fall into the exact same trap and shoot them. We've been told that it was an accident that started this war, that Ducat's death was an unfortunate thing. They didn't mean it to happen, but it did. We've been given it all, and yet the show never concretely until now told us what all of these things were when you put them together. And so we have that now. We have, this is the beginning. This is the guy. He was ordered, and now we've got them in the order that we need. We've only got one major piece left, which is Delenn and how she factors into the war, and we'll get that next season. But what I like about the reveal of it here, I think about how Star Trek Discovery does reveals like this, in which we already know the reveal three episodes before the reveal is given to us, like Every season they have a Mr. and Star Trek Discovery. And three or four episodes before the season finale, they tell us what the mystery is. And then they wait another three episodes to tell us again like it's a big surprise. And the real difference here is we have the answer. Already we have the answer. If you were smart enough, if you really sat down and thought about it, you could have already known this. But the reveal itself here is not necessarily about... Why the Earthman Bari, how the Earthman Bari War started, but how this man, who has been the mystery of this episode, factored into that, and why he is here today. And that is far more uh, smooth to take than if they played it as if it was a dramatic reveal of how the Earthman Bari War started, because in a way we already know it. When this reveal happened, you aren't left aghast going, that's how it started. You're more left there stroking your chin going, oh, yes, of course. On a level, you already knew this. Yeah. So I had a thought, and I want to share that thought with you. Rachel, this is a safe space. No, no. It's a yum space. It's a yum yum space. I know. We I are know at, you. We're at your school at the moment. That's where we live and record. 
and we just drove here in our yum yum mobile you've got your yum yum ring on and i've just put the yum yum mural away you're in your safe space your yum yum place he, so share suck. the thoughts with us you suck you suck you i suck. yum i yum you suck i yum i yum <laughs> No, no, no. No, seriousness. What have you got? So, when we were starting this episode, uh, I was drawn to a particular comparison. Because as we both know, JMS, Twin Peaks fan. He is a Twin Peaks fan. He is a Twin Peaks. He is a Twins Peaks fan, and he's even had a writer work on this and actors from that series be here. And, you know, this plot has some similarities. It does. With a particular plot from season two of Twin Peaks, right? Oh, yeah. This ain't no no season one Twin (laughs) Peaks plot. It it looks like, it smells like, and it quacks like a season two plot. Uh, From Twin Peaks, this is. Um, So in Twin Peaks, there is a character that has a mental breakdown. Yes. And... Becomes obsessed with a historical figure, yeah, and that he the idea that he is this historical figure, mm. and that he needs to reenact certain moments from this person's history, yeah, in a different way, in a re envisioned yeah. way, to create a new reality. And when this is done, the mental breakdown is over and he... The inner turmoil is resolved. Yeah, and he is, you know, bright as a newborn day and everything is sunshine, happy-go-lucky. Yeah, we're talking about Ben Horn thinking that he's in the Civil War and that he needs to help the South win. Uh, Yeah. I understand. You know, you brought that up and I winced at that because that's a really terrible plot line from Twin Peaks uh, and it goes on for episodes, episodes and episodes, and it's really bad. And I winced at it because when you framed it like that, it made me really turn against this because we know JMS has a background in psychology, and I'm not saying that this isn't stuff that happens to people, but this type of mental unwell is really convenient and great for TV. That's what it really made me think of, yeah. which is that Ben Horn one, really great for TV. This, this is a mental breakdown that's really great for a TV plot. Yeah. And that really diminished my appreciation And just of that it. of, you just need to do this one thing, and they're completely recovered, just able to go back on with their lives. Or they're much better off in that they'll be able to mend themselves over time. And Yeah, and yeah. it's just like, no, no, no. Yeah, I get it, you want this to be one and done. A neat little bow. 
neat little bow. He goes off to help the Even nun. though Franklin is just like, oh, are you sure you won't stay for some observation? And the patient's like, nah, nah, I'm fine. So you would cut a tonic a couple of hours ago. But, but Jakar vouches for him. Yeah. Jakar, who only knew him as King Arthur, vouches for him. Yeah. So. <laughs> Psychologist Jakar vouches I, for him. I was thinking about that comparison to the Ben Horn stuff a lot throughout this episode. It's just feels like psychology made quackery to fit TV isms. I if you could follow that sentence. No, it's Split. You remember the film Split where they took uh, multiple personality disorder mm-hmm. or, or dissociative identity disorder, but mm-hmm. they called it multiple sometimes in that, and they used it as a fun story gimmick for your movie and not really anything else. And that's how I feel about this, in which it's a... Mental illness thing, your PTSD survivor's guilt thing that manifests into this idea that he's running around thinking he's King Arthur. And it's oh so good for a 45-minute plot of the week rather than anything deeper. And again, I think you can make this deeper. If we're doing the Babylon 5 reboot, there are two episodes of this show I dare JMS to do again and do better. TKO... Give us a full episode of Ivanova's side of that, or in a character equivalent, and this episode. I fucking dare you. There's a way you could do this episode so much better than it already is. And again, I want to stress, I like this on this watch far more. I was in the groove of this. I didn't love it as much, and I think there's some flaws with it as we're going through right now. Uh, but looking at it today, I was far more understanding of where this was trying to go rather yeah. than the previous ones in which I didn't care oh, okay. where it was going. And then there's this interesting little wrinkle that could have been a whole episode on its own as well. This is an episode that is actually filled to the brim with a it's lot of potential. things that could have been their own individual episodes, which is Marcus and Franklin are now friends. Yeah, They're hanging out. Mm-hmm. Marcus is being this humanitarian who is great for the lurkers and he's bringing Franklin in to help them. They've got that buddy dynamic happening and it's really great to see. It's really wonderful to see. And they're chalk and cheese. They're both cynics, but in different ways, and they're both optimists, but in different ways. It's a really great bond between these two guys. And there comes a and point they in come which... come down on different sides when it comes to a particular problem that they end up facing, which is, do we tell this man who he really is? And Franklin mm. says yes. And Marcus says no. We can't just let him wander around the rest of his life thinking that he's King Arthur. Why not? Because this is the truth. Better the illusions that exalt us than 10,000 truths. Alexander Pushkin, yes. Let this one truth die, Stephen. Let it be Arthur. Let it be anyone he wants. I have an obligation to help him. Now, if I confront him with this, it may be enough to snap him out of this delusion. Your Hippocratic Oath says do no harm. If you do this, you'll be doing great harm, Stephen. Stephen! I'm sorry. I have to. On, on his viewpoint, I don't think that this man could be, should be indefinitely kept in the dark about the truth of who he is. I don't think Franklin's approach of sitting down in his quarters and being like kind of 
shaking him by the shoulders and being like, this is who you are! He wasn't like that. No, no but that's a kernel of what happened. He forces the information yeah. upon him in a way that does leave him in a catatonic state. Yeah, and I think that the a part of that is just the contrivance of TV, like... You can't say that over several days they're going to expose him to different things. You can't just bring in a therapist character that we've never seen before and will never meet again and won't contribute anything other than a function. No. So I get it. It's not like Babylon 5 does that. It's not like we had a bomb expert in one episode that never even got to be a bomb expert. Whatever. I wish that Franklin was more aware of the consequences that this could have because they've already identified that this problem is purely psychological. Mm -hmm. He has no physical things that are happening that are causing this delusion. So it is, he's in a very unstable state of mind. And pushing this huge thing on him that has been the reason for his mental break in the first place. Like, his mind is running away from this idea and creating this facade... This narrative. ...of the Arthurian... Legend. ...legend around it to buffer his state so that he can continue to survive and Franklin's just like oh you're running away from this thing if I push this thing into your face then you'll be better right yeah and that's a logic that I understand as well from him I think Franklin is more right than than Marcus Marcus is emotional and naive at the same time He just wants this guy to run around thinking he's King Arthur because that's a better way to live than to find out the horrifying truth. And that is naive of Marcus. And it is so his character, though. Yeah, he's not... He's not the dude that tells kids that Santa's not real. But that's Marcus. Marcus has all of these things that he thinks he's dealt with and he hasn't, and now he's a ranger. He is living the King Arthur life where he's had all of these horrible things happen to him and he can't forgive himself or process those things. So he throws himself into this new role of being the action hero, quippy ranger guy. And that's him. He is looking at this from a standpoint of reflecting upon who he is as a character because he's emotional and empathetic, but also it is something that ties into how he is as a person. And Franklin is the same. Now, here's the question, though. that They have it in the text that when it goes wrong and Frank- Franklin fucks up, he acknowledges his character flaw, which is, you think after everything I've gone through, I would have learned by now that I can't, I can't just fix I can't everything. Fix everything. I can't he, he fix acknowledges, everyone. He acknowledges that what he did is wrong, yet he also acknowledges that that is just a thing within him where he yeah. thinks he can easily walk in and fix things without like, any consequences. I, la, I yeah. am coming to this with good intentions, so good things will come about because of my good intentions. And we've seen that be 
magnified yeah. in believers yeah. to a it's, degree that was obviously very a hundred percent Franklin being Franklin. Yeah. So this is one of those moments in which you raise your eyebrows at him and you go, I don't know about that, and you see the result and you go, Ah, oh, geez, Franklin. And then there's a payoff to it in which this is just another layer to his flaws as a character, in which he could have dealt with this so much better, but he didn't because he thought he had it under control. He thought that he could just come in and fix it himself. And it backfired on him. And in the end, it all works out. They they find the thing, but we see there are times when it doesn't work out, and yeah. we'll see times where it will work out. And soon, very soon, we'll see a, times where it's really not going to work out well for Franklin when he keeps going down this uh, down this road. I like that. He's, I like that conflict between the two guys. On the path, even though he knows that it's dangerous. Like so many characters. I really like that conflict between Marcus and Franklin because mm. they're both wanting to do the right thing. They're both wanting this man to be okay, but they just have fundamentally different ideas of what that is. And that's so much more interesting than what they're actually talking about. Mm. And it's so much more interesting than if they were on just opposite ends for opposite reasons. But they want the same thing. Yeah. But they're pulling in two different directions because of who they are. And that is a lot of Franklin stories. Where it's either it's either him or Sinclair or him and Garibaldi or him and Marcus and that is just how he rolls as a character in which he wants to do the right thing, but he is at odds with the other characters who also want to do the right thing. You know, you'd think I'd learn one of these days that I can't fix everything, but it never happens. Now, I gave him back the sword. I I figured maybe it'd help, but it didn't. Let's get into the spotlight section of our show. I the am part so in which we oh yes, where we talk about an actor or actress that appeared in a given episode, go over their performance, what we thought about them, any other roles we've seen them in, interesting pieces of trivia we've learnt about them over the course of watching this and going through their background. Today we're looking at Michael York, because of course we are. It's Michael York. And we've already said it a lot throughout this entire discussion, but he's great. Chef's kisses all around for this performance. This is what they should have done with David Warner. This is what they should have done when they had David Warner on. Where David Warner deserved this. You get an actor This caliber of stuff. You get an actor who is very good... They're very well regarded. Even if you give them slightly lesser material, you give them the ability to elevate that material even more. And that is what Michael York gets to do here. He is fantastic. I have lots of notes about what didn't work for me in this episode. None of them are actually about Michael York and how he embodies this. He does not play this for laughs. He doesn't play this for silliness. He gets this material and takes it 
seriously. And because he's that type of actor that can take this role seriously, we can take it seriously. We can be invested. We can buy into him. Even if you don't, like me, buy into the premise of the episode, you believe him. And I commend that so much. The direction and the acting paired together so well. Because also, this episode was very well directed. It looked great. It felt great. The The pacing of scenes was really well done. The, the banter. Dream, the, 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 the flashback sequences. I thought they were great. The direction of those dream sequences is superb. And so many of those moments work because of the performance that the actor is giving because it relies on close-ups and extreme close-ups in Mm -hmm. a lot of that and you feel it so heavily when you're in those moments the burden and the weight of the survivor's guilt that he's carrying. And the PTSD and, and the flashes. It doesn't memory. know how to process this information. And that idea of the subconscious mind rising up and the conscious mind not being able to process, process it. He is really great at playing the silences. In another actor's hands... When he's silent, it could be goofy. There's the moment where he becomes catatonic and he has his mouth open, his eyes are wide. And he's like if this sort was of slumping forward. If this was another actor, that would be laughable. Yeah, it would be like, oh, you're a zombie now, great. It would be laugh. If this was Jinxo, it would have been laughable. Yeah. It's not. It's just he has that presence. You can tell this is an experienced pro of stage, film, and television using all of the skills they've learned over the years and bringing them here. And like with Brad Dorif, where Brad Dorif has done so many roles over the years, and yet when he came to B5, he still gave it 110%, doing things that could have been laughable in another person's hands as well. And yeah, Michael York is... A legend. He's fantastic. He's funny. He's charming beyond belief in this. You believe he's King Arthur because a part of you knows that he's probably... You know in your heart that he's probably played a knight or King Arthur in his career at some point. So you believe him when he comes in and says, I'm King Arthur, even though you know he can't be. I'm disappointed. Disappointed that he is not a sir. Maybe he doesn't want to be. He's an OBE, but no, not, not, a sir. not a sir. Sir York. So he's like, I'm pretty sure like... He's uh, an OBE, order, like a level or two down. Order of the British Empire, which is like, yeah. Can like we get second. an OBE? Can we get an OBE? Australians yeah. can get that. Australians can get an OBE. We can't get knighted, right? N- no. Maybe. No. I'll, ask, I'll ask our new king. Uh, I'll get him on the phone, get him on the pod. I know I know he's a big fan of Babylon 5. But, Michael York, any other moments, any moments you want to bring up? Because we're talking about just generally he's pretty great, but was there a standout sequence or scene or banter or line of dialogue or physical? There's a line that I just, I don't think that it should work, but he makes it work. Do you have a guess? 
Is it when he tells the old lady to put back her tears? No. Because a face that beautiful should not. I thought that was one. I thought that was corny as hell. That line. That was. But when he said it, I, 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 I believed I, him. I believed him. I didn't remember I was watching Babylon Five. I thought we were watching a, a, an Arthurian show in which uh. we're watching this absolute hero among men helping the weak. I I I was enamored by that line. No, no, it's a moment that that is that that's probably a better example than the one that I have. Uh, my one relies a bit more on a twinge of JMS humor. <gasps> humor, no, which is <laughs> uh, we called him the Green Knight. Oh, that was good. I like that. When Jakar passes out. Yeah. And then he refers to, yeah, one of our knights. He was a big drinker. And when he got like this, we'd call him the Green Knight. And it's like, ha, 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 ha. Very good. Line delivery, well earned. Yeah. One tr- There's like, that could come off really fucking stupid in somebody else's mouth. Oh, yeah. One of the trivia points I do know, and I don't know if you got this for this episode, was Jakar, Andres Katsoulis, and Michael York really got a lot out of working with one another out of this. Uh, obviously, Andres Kotsoulis was a big stage actor, well-regarded actor, and he knew of Michael York's work, of course, and knew of knew who, of who he was and was just looking at him and studying him and they were yeah. studying each other and they, they seemed to have a really Elevated good... Elevated each other. They seemed to have a really good working dynamic as actors, and I think that he was one of the favorite guest stars that Andreas got to work alongside in this series. And which, it's easy to see why. By Zuquan, I can't recall the last time I was in a fight like that. No moral ambiguity, no hopeless battle against ancient and overwhelming forces. They were the bad guys, as you say. We were the good guys, and they made a very satisfying thump when they hit the floor. It's wrong for the strong to prey on the weak. That idea was at the very heart of the round table. To correct injustice. To promote a society of laws, not arms. Well said! I'm going to list off what his top four known as mm-hmm. are, and... Because I find it really interesting and really representational of his overall career that these are his like sort of top four things. And Basil Exposition is one of them, and we'll get more into him. But just as a as a so, sort of soft intro, he was Logan in Logan's Run, iconic. Uh, Brian Roberts in Cabaret, equally uh, iconic. Hopefully, I've got his character name. I right. I will say. That's probably probably what got him the role in this. Uh, Tybalt in Romeo 19, and Juliet. Yeah, nineteen sixty-eight, Romeo and Juliet, and then Basil Exposition in the Austin Powers. Probably the most beloved Romeo and Juliet film adaptation. That one as well. So he is uh, no, no, no. Cabaret. JMS is a big fan of that film. Mm-hmm. In a few episodes' time. We'll see, and a rock cried out, "No hiding place." And in the an ending sequence in that is the juxtaposition of brutal violence with upbeat music. JMS talks about on the Lurkers Guide. I'm pretty sure that he was they were inspired with that sequence to a sequence in Cabaret, where there's a very similar moment of like the the kind of upbeat, swilly German song being like, "Yeah, having fun with 
cutting to extreme violence yeah. and this is something that I can see JMS being a big fan of sci-fi too. I'm sure Logan's run was very important, but knowing that he's a big fan of that film, the idea of getting Michael York, the lead actor of that, to come into Babylon 5 seems like an yeah, easy there's a lot of, connection there. A lot of reasons become a lot of reasons become apparent when you look at Michael York's history and JMS and you're like yep and yep and yep and yep and those are all big ticks for why they get this guy what we've on learned my show. what we've learned about doing the actor spotlight section is JMS as a showrunner really got to sit down with the casting people and told them what actors he liked seeing on television and or in movies when he grew up and said can we get them on my show and eventually they do and uh, or they try and i think that's such a awesome power move because yeah, I love it. I love we it. get some actors you wouldn't expect to see. Some British character actor or some actor from the 1960s in this one episode of this show that comes on and they're here and Michael York, yeah, I wouldn't have expected him to be on Babylon 5. I mean, it's not out of the realm of possibility. He's done a bunch of TV work over his mm, career, but, but he does he does a lot of American stuff. He did. Mm. He's British, and he started off doing British stuff. I think, like his first three credits, one I think was an American film, one was Dutch, and one was French. Yeah, and at this point in his career, he was heavily in America, where he was doing stuff like Austin Powers around the same time. So Um, this was obviously that like coincided that he moved to America and he married an American so they yeah. settled in LA for a really long time mm-hmm. and um, there's interesting stories about his house okay well we'll hear about that in a moment I gotta talk about Logan's Run you've never seen Logan's no, Run no I haven't seen Logan's Run I want to it's on Australian Netflix I believe at the moment uh, and I'm like, okay, I need I need to do this at some point. It's iconic, and I basically know nothing about it. Well, here's what I'll say. I've seen Logan's Run, and I think this isn't an unusual consensus. It's a great movie until it isn't. It's a mm. mess, and it's a horny, unnecessarily horny it's film, a, it's sci-fi. It's a 60s movie, isn't it? 70s, I'm pretty sure. Uh, if not, but uh, yeah, yeah, 76. It's got a great first act, and the premise of the movie, this dystopian premise, is really interesting. And then there comes a point where it's just them running around in ice cave sets, and it gets really boring, for my taste. But it does have that cult sci-fi status and aesthetic, and you've got Michael York at the center of it being excellent. He is excellent in that movie. And, uh, yeah, you mentioned Romeo and Juliet. I've seen him in that as Tybalt. Oh, he was great. He's fantastic. He's always great. Uh, we, we we know him for so many things. Basil Exposition is what I know him for. I am a huge Austin Powers fan, especially when I was growing up as a kid. And Basil was always great. And there are so many quotes relating to Basil and even from Basil that are often used in amongst my friend group. Oh, this coffee smells like shit. It is shit, Austin. Oh, good, then it's not just me. I 
remember he was in an episode of Law and Order, Criminal Intent. Oh. I loved Law and Order, Criminal Intent, because it was very different. It had Vincent D'Onofrio as our lead, and he was giving us everything you want Vincent to do. <laughs> he was wonderful in that series. It's a real Sherlock Holmes take on Law and Order as well, and the their version of Irene Adler in that was this Australian serial killer lady that he kept letting get away, but also he loved her, and we found out that Michael York was her mentor, was her serial-killing sociopathic mentor, and he was, I, I, I do not use this lightly, fabulous. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he wore a cravat. He was like a lounging ladies' man, and he was a creep as well, but he was absolutely adorably fabulous and just wonderfully extravagant. And he gets, spoiler alert, he gets killed at the end by the... Australian lady. She doesn't even, I think, physically appear in that episode. It's just, you know she did it because <laughs> yeah. we can't have that loose end to be found because her whole thing is you don't really know my backstory and now you're mm. stumbling across it. How dare you? And he was just absolutely wonderful in that one-off guest appearance of Law & Order, Criminal Intent. And I know there's someone listening to this that remembers that episode and goes, yeah, Ryan, he was great in that. Lord Order Criminal Ted, underrated, underrated show. It's pretty good. It pretty you good. could say that about pretty much anything. Yeah. He was in this, and he was great. Has he ever been bad? He's been in bad things, but has he ever been bad? Tim Curry effect? Is he the Tim Curry effect, where it's like every time you see Tim Curry in something, you're having a good time, even if it's shit? Yeah, every time I see Michael And he's York, good in everything, even yeah. when it's bad. Uh, yeah. I, I would I would yeah. say so. Uh, he was in How I Met Your Mother. Yes, he was uh, one of the Van Snoots. Mm. Um, he was, I believe, in the episode like he's just in one. I'm pretty sure. Um, where Ted uh, gets an in with all of the snooty mm-hmm. people. Um, and, and he's one of them. Yeah. And he he's one of them, and it's just like he's such a big fan of Ted mm. doing all of like the wine tasting and telling all of these jokes and giving these facts about architecture that all yeah. of his friends make fun of him for. <laughs> Do you want to talk about it? He was in some episodes of a show you love. He was in them. Do you want to? Do you want to talk about his time on Gilmore Girls? Yes. Yes, I do. Who was he on Gilmore Girls and did he share scenes with Jane Carr? Because that would have been the dream team. Both stuffy British people from Babylon 5 and Gilmore Girls. <laughs> I don't think so. No. Um, he's in it very sparingly. Four episodes. Four episodes, but he's referenced in a lot more than he physically appears. And I always wanted more of him. He's Asher Fleming. Okay. A Yale professor. Oh, so he's Rory's professor, right? Yeah. Because she went to Yale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is it? Which is fun because I think in the show they say he he's like originally from Oxford. And Mr. York graduated from Oxford. So that 
might have been a nice nod or it might just be implanting that. A coincidence. That. Um, but no. So he's a literature professor at Yale. And each year he picks a freshman to have an affair with. I knew you were going to go there. I knew it. He, he can't just play nice guys, can no, he? He's always like no. a little bit of a scamp. He is a very sexual person in this show. Oh, yeah. Um, Michael York fucks. Michael that's, York fucks. That's, that's a fact. Facts. Did you see him in this show? He fucks. Yeah. He's going to go to Narn and help populate. I'm just saying. Fucks. Mm-hmm. Fucks. Yeah. <laughs> but he, his character gives me one of my favorite lines in the whole of Gilmore Girls. Because it's just so fucking stupid, it's great. So in the show, um, Ash is still around, uh, but uh, like he's not teaching Rory anymore. Um, she's not the freshman that he has an affair with. Bummer. It's Paris, her overbearing friend. Love Paris. Here for Paris. We're here for Paris. We're both here for Paris. Who is Paris? Well, they're having an affair with Michael York. Yeah. She gets to bang Michael York. (laughs) Who needs to graduate? That's graduation right there. Yeah. Or ejaculation. (laughs) Um, There's so many great lines when she's talking about fucking him and having an affair with him and being his mistress. But but what's the the line? What's this the line? Did you know she wrote it down even? Yeah, I did. Um... It wasn't during, um, was it? No, Rory. This great man was not brought down by my vagina, okay? It's just like she's mourning him, and like very intensely, and there's this great, like, I believe it's like multiple episodes repercussion, Mm -hmm. Uh, because, you know, he's a literature professor, and like... Paris is like, oh, yeah, he had a bunch of affairs, but, he, like, you know, I think he actually really loved me. <laughs> um, and then she finds out that he showed some affection for her. Yeah. Because um, he left her something in his will. Oh, no. Which is an ancient printing press. <laughs> Thank you, Michael York. Thank you, Michael York. And it York. just lives in their living room for a while, and she's just like, I, I'm trying to figure out reasons to keep it around, but it's like a Why? giant, <laughs> giant ancient contraption that's just staying in their living room, uh, and everybody's uh. really annoyed at it, but they're like, she's mourning this guy, so what can we do? I like the idea that Michael York's character... You cast Michael York, and you don't even have to come up with a reason why his character would have an ancient printing press. It's just you cast him and you go, yeah, of course he would. He's, he's a m- literature professor. Of course he has it. But not even that. He's, he's Michael York. I mean, he was in Curb Your Enthusiasm as himself, even. I, I remember some of that. And, yeah, he's just a guy that, for a period of time, was just popping up in things like sliders and... 
a very vast career. Because in all honesty, when I think of Michael York, I think of him in two ways. Guy who would occasionally, occasionally do a comedy thing like Austin Powers. But mainly I always think of him as a serious Shakespearean dramatic British actor. But when I'm looking over his catalogue of work, a vast array of roles and a vast array of people that he would yeah. hone in on. and I was surprised by the number of voice acting credits. I mean, are has. you with that voice? Can I help you? Uh, yes, I'm a reporter with a local paper. I'm doing a story on people who wear sweaters. Do you mind if I ask you some questions? I'd be delighted, but I must warn you, I don't wear a sweater every day. Interesting. Interesting. He's been in a number of Musketeers yeah. productions. Yeah, because he's one of the three. He's, he's, you know, he, yeah, he he's got to be. One of the, one of, he was da, da ha, You don't know the Musketeers. Don't pretend. No, I have it written down and I can't pronounce it. D'Artagnan. D'Artagnan. He was mainly D'Artagnan. Of course he was. Do you see that guy? He's a sexy... Here's the thing, too. Let's not beat around the bush. We already said he fucks. He's a sexy man. He's a sexy man. There's this moment in the episode of Babylon 5 where they show him a picture of his younger self and he's pretending like he doesn't... Like his character is oblivious to the fact that that's him. And I almost <laughs> want him to be like, I don't know who this rather sexy, charming I'll man is, but I do like <laughs> the way his hair is cut. My lord, what a beautiful looking man. Too bad I don't know who that is. And I just kind of wish Michael Law- Michael York looked into the camera and gave, and that's when he winked. Yeah. Like, that's when he winks at the camera like, it's me, guys. Like, I know I'm sexy and you know it do too. Do you know his connection to the Wicker Man? Yes, I read this, and this makes a lot of sense. Makes him, so much fucking sense! In his career, him and Edward Woodward would often compete for similar roles. So he was up for being the lead in The Wicker Man, he could not do it, it went to Edward Woodward, and there are so many incidents of that happening in the career of both men, in which one would get in the other almost. And I can totally get that. They have somewhat similar vibes to them. I would say Edward Woodward, in my experience, has a far more aggressive vibe. I think he plays sterner characters than Michael York. Michael York, I think, has... He has uh, a softness to him. Uh, he's like, I will fuck you, but it will be a sensual experience. He's playful. Mm-hmm. He's playful far more. Uh, Edward Woodward could have that too. I mean, let's not forget he was in Hot Fuzz. But um, you said... You had some information more so about him as a person. Now, now, yeah. him and his wife, you said there was something going on with them and their, was it their house? Yes. Um, so, we'll get to the house stuff in, in a little while. There's a little bit more of backstory to get up to some context, them selling the house. Which is the um, king's. Anyway, um, he has this really nice quote about his wife. They've been married, I think, since like the 60s. They never had kids, but she already had a kid, so he's a stepfather. Um, But he had this to say about his wife. An extraordinary woman every day is a fascination to love her. And I just thought that was so sweet. Every day loving you is a fascination, Rachel. 
Thanks. <laughs> it's not sweet when I say it, though. <laughs> Thanks. So. No, I was just. I, you're waiting for more? Yeah. I was Fascinating waiting. how you eat so much chocolate. Wah, wah, wah. I wanted some of it, Rachel. Okay. Okay. But it's too yum yum to share. Uh, there it is. <laughs> There's there's the thing that I was waiting for. Um, so back in 2009, he was having a lot of health problems. Okay. Um, searching around for a diagnosis and for a brief time that they diagnosed him with throat cancer. No. But that was a misdiagnosis. Okay. What he actually has is a rare disease that is called amyloidosis. Okay. Uh, which affects, like, the proteins in your body. And oh. you get proteins where there shouldn't be proteins. Oh, so it places them in different areas. Yeah. Oh, okay. I was expecting, like, protein deficiencies. But no, no. this is... Oh, okay. So um, he's had two blood stem cell transplants, which have, like, he says that my life's been saved twice now Okay, by this. So um, around 2009 was when it was sort of started. And then in 2013, he got the formal diagnosis. Right. And he basically hasn't been working at all sort of since then. Some voice stuff, right? Yeah. Simpsons. Yeah, a couple of guest spots on The Simpsons, and the last one was 2020, and he's got something that was listed as being in post-production at the moment. So during this, um, he and his wife were like, okay, what, what do we do? Because they went to the Mayo Clinic, which was where he finally got diagnosed because it's a rare disease, so everybody was thinking that it was something else. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious uh, if you have the information. So, like, what, what, what are the, like, what's wrong with him exactly? Like, what does it physically manifest into that's, like, impeding his ability to be an actor, necessarily? I'm just curious. Like, I understand, like, the idea of, like, proteins being distributed to different places, but I don't know what that actually means. Maybe it's just me being oblivious, but I just don't know like what you physically get when that happens. Well, it usually kills you within 7 to 12 years after you get a diagnosis because it affects all, like how all of your organs function. Okay. Okay, so you could have like organ failures and okay, interesting. So you were saying he he uh he had to go into this clinic where he got the formal diagnosis for what's been happening. He's no longer working as much if at all because of this. Wow, I was really I didn't really know that because when you look at Michael York's IMDb, you see he yeah. still does things. So it can particularly affect heart and kidneys. Um, so early as if you can catch it early, it's much better because obviously the more mm. that the proteins build up, the more problems that it can cause. So he's working with teams at the Mayo Clinic. 
and in one of the articles that I read, he's just like, you know, in LA, you used to be friends with all of these like superstar celebrities, and now all of my best friends are doctors. Yeah. Wow. I didn't realize because you think of Michael York as just a guy who's still out there working because he's been working always. He's yeah. always been doing the grind and being that charming mm-hmm. British rogue that we all know mm-hmm. and love. And he was yeah. in all those Austin Powers movies, which gave a revitalization mm-hmm. to his career and doing all of this voice yeah. stuff. So, And I think it may have also been affecting his eyes uh, because in all of the recent photos that I've, I've encountered of him doing this research, he has the very heavy tinted yellow lenses. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like, you you have to hide your beautiful eyes. No. Wow. Okay. I mean, you know, I hope things go well for him and he's been going through this for yeah, a while. Yeah. So, so he's been going through this for a while. And um, I think it was a couple of years ago, um, sort of during the pandemic, I think, that they decided to move to the Mayo Clinic, which is in Minnesota. So they've moved from LA up north. Mm -hmm. And their house has its own really interesting history because they're... The mansion that they owned um, was sold for obviously several million dollars. It's a couple of streets or something away from Sunset Boulevard. Mm-hmm. Um, the like they rattled off all of these other people that have lived there, and um, a few stories about different dinner parties that they had at this place, but. The only owner that I particularly know of was Ronald Reagan and his first wife lived there. Really? Yeah. Former Hollywood actor and president of the United States, Ronald W. Reagan. Yes. <laughs> the W stands for the West. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, interesting. Yeah. Uh, so they sold that property and moved up to Minnesota. And now he's just kind of chilling in Minnesota, getting treatments and um he was looking forward to uh, and like when he moved there he was looking forward to doing this and he's done it a couple of times of showing his films right in the town <laughs> or like to his friends so he showed like the three musketeers and the four musketeers that's cool and he was looking forward to showing some of his like lesser known films and show, like showcasing them to. Can you the imagine just living in met? Minnesota and then you live with Michael York, just yeah. British, dashing Michael York? Yeah. So he, uh, it, it seems that like because of his health stuff, he's sort of in like a semi-retirement sort of phase. Yeah. Like I didn't find anything official about him saying that he's not working anymore but it seems that this health condition has really taken over a lot of his life you know i'm slowly getting back and uh i but though i you know uh, everything in contrast to this seems uh, important but this seems to me totally important 
So uh, if I can give whatever energies I have left and time I have left to this, I, I shall be a happy man. Everybody has their favorite Michael York thing. He's done so much in his career, and we agree he was excellent here. He was yum yum. Yum yum. Is that what you're going to rate the episode, though, Rachel? On our scale of yum being bad and yum yum being good, is a late delivery from Avalon yum or yum yum? It's yum. Yeah. What? I couldn't hear you. What was that? You sounded like as quiet as a church mouse. Yum. Yeah. How could you say that? This episode had a guy running around with a sword and Jakarva being fun and drunk and not Jakar having to worry about the moral yum, ambiguity. But, but late delivery from Avalon. Just a yum from me. It's a yum from me. Let's talk about what we'll be viewing and discussing next time on Babylon 5. On the next Babylon 5. Ship of Tears. War can forge unexpected allegiances. Events surrounding the recovery of a transport vessel convince Cyclops Besta to assist B5 in its struggle with the shadows. Ooh. Ooh, it's a Bester episode. Bester! Bester's back, baby! Oh, that would be fun. People, make sure to give Ship of Tears a viewing in the interim of time. While you do that, how about you lift your finger up out of your butthole and give us a rating and review on whatever podcatcher or podcast hosting site you you use to do so. You can just use voice assist. Or your tongue. And that's how we want it, actually. Use your tongue. You can use the other hand, even. No, 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 no. You still have to take a finger out of your butthole for that, too. So use your fingers and finger us a review. Uh, a positive one would be appreciated. You can follow us on the social media platforms or under Yum Yum Pod or Yum Yum Podcast, as well as support our show even more so on Patreon, where we are going through space above and beyond. We're talking about individuals of that individual episodes of that series on our Patreon, as well as the X Men movies and the Star Trek movies have been discussed. There's a buttload of content. That's why you got your fingers up there. You're trying to get all the Patreon content out of there. Too bad. You've actually got to sign on to Patreon. Go to Yum Yum Podcast on Patreon. Uh, add yourself to a tear yeah you disgust Rachel hear that (laughs) trying to steal our content without actually supporting us financially all of this is in the description of the episode including our email address yumyumpod at gmail.com Jakar was here and he said goodbye to the King Arthur guy but he didn't say good eating to you which I thought was really offensive considering that he is now a knight and I, I have no words to say about how offended I am by Jakar, other than I will just finish this out now. Rachel, good eating to you. Good eating to you. Ah, Mr. Caraboldi!